0: Right, our text is from Acts chapter 10. You're going to keep your Bibles open to that passage. We are continuing in a series of messages on the theme, The Church Marches On. The Church has been marching on. Hitherto, the major battles and victories have been experienced in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, But Christ has indicated to his disciples that they must be witnesses not only in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, but also unto the uttermost parts of the, the earth. That inroad into the uttermost part of the world would begin at Caesarea Maritima, about 50 kilometres north of Joppa, Along the Mediterranean coast. More specifically, it began in the heart of an Italian centurion by the name of Cornelius. This evening, the Lord helping us, we want to uh, see how the Lord answered Cornelius' prayer, how he prepared the apostle Peter uh, to go to Cornelius, and how Peter met with the servants that Cornelius uh, sent uh, to, to call for Peter. Now, this is the prelude to the Gentile Pentecost that, God willing, we will examine in a few weeks' time. So there are three things in tonight's uh, sermon. First, let us consider the Lord's answers to Cornelius' prayer. Our account opens with these beautiful words. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band, a devout man and one that feared God, with all his house, which gave much alms to the people, and prayed to God always. Cornelius is a centurion, or a commander of a hundred soldiers under the Italian band. Now, under the Roman military structure, a band or cohort has 600 men, A legion has 6,000 men. So Cornelius is not really a very high-ranking officer. Nevertheless, he holds quite a responsible position. More importantly, he is a devout man and a God-fearer. Now, a devout man uh, is uh, religious and pious, but not necessarily a God-fearer. You can have uh, a devout man who is actually uh, superstitious or idolatrous, but not Cornelius. Cornelius is both a devout man and a God-fearer. He is not a superstitious man or an idolatrous man. He fears the living and true God, and he leads his family in the way of righteousness. He is a man given to prayer, we are told, and he gives much alms to the poor uh, who are in need. Now, commentators disagree on Cornelius' spiritual state At this point, is he a proselyte to the Jewish religion, as some suggest? If so, he is not circumcised yet. Otherwise, he will be regarded as a Jew rather than as a Gentile uh, by Peter. Or perhaps, as Matthew Henry suggests, he is a religious man seeking the living and true God according to the light he has that steers him away from pagan idolatry. Could it be that he has partial knowledge of the gospel through hearsay uh, exposition or hearsay exposure to Philip's ministry? Remember how Philip had gone to Caesarea to minister. Uh, we, We see that in Acts chapter 8 and verse 40. But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. Caesarea Maritima, that is Caesarea by the coast. There's another Caesarea, Philippi. Right? So this is the Caesarea. So Philip would have ministered there, and possibly uh, uh, Cornelius would have heard something of the gospel, maybe through hearsay and so on. Indeed, it may even be that Cornelius is already a regenerate man by now, even though his knowledge is still partial. In any case, around the ninth hour or 3pm, the time of the evening worship of the Jews, one day Cornelius is praying earnestly and the Lord sends an angel to him. Cornelius is instantly afraid. I'm sure you will be afraid too if an angel appears before you. Uh, If an angel appears before you and you're not afraid, you're probably not really encountering the angel. I think any one of us will be afraid if we see the real angel before you. Well, the angel allays his fear by telling him that he is sent in response to his prayers and good works. This is one of the reasons why we suspect that Cornelius May already be regenerate and a justified man. For as Paul reminds us, there is none that doeth good, no, not one. No good works are good in God's sight unless they are sprinkled with the blood of Christ. In any case, the angel instructs Cornelius to send men to Joppa, to the house of Simon the Tanner by the seaside, to look for Simon Peter. And Peter will tell him what to do, verse 5 to 6. As soon as the angel departs, Cornelius calls two of his household servants and a soldier uh, who was assigned to him, who is known to be devout. He tells him, uh, or tells them, the three of them, what the angel said to him and then sends them off to Joppa immediately. Are the two servants also devout? Uh, they, They... they are actually godly persons. Uh, Well, we are not told. But I think we can assume that they are. For uh, we are told in verse 2 that Cornelius feared God with all his house. In those days, the house includes uh, the household servants and slaves as well. We can be quite sure that they are chosen by Cornelius for the task because they are God-fearers too. At any rate, the soldier here points to accompany them is certainly devout, he's a pious man. We need not doubt that he was influenced for good by Cornelius. One commentator suggests such men, that is, soldiers or men of violence, uh, have usually been supposed to be far from the influence of religion. But uh, this instance shows that even the disadvantages of a camp are not necessarily hostile to the existence of piety. Isn't the testimony of Cornelius quite encouraging? Uh, soldiers, you know, are uh, men of violence. Why do we say soldiers are men of violence? Because they are employed to do violence, right? That we do not want to do. Uh, when the enemy attacks, you you want the soldiers to fight them. And how to fight them? With violence. So they are men of violence. Uh, So we think that such men uh, will seldom come to the Lord because by nature, they are people who are ready to fight. But here is a centurion and his household and at least one of his subordinates fearing God. The fact is that Christ has his sheep everywhere. Some are already in the fold. Some he will bring in. Cornelius and his household and some who serve in the army with him are the sheep of Christ. They fear God according to the limited light they have. These our Saviour will bring into the fold, and they will be instrumental in calling many other sheep into the fold. Let us not be discouraged, therefore, when we see little growth and few conversions in the church. Who knows where the Lord's sheep for not yet in the full, maybe, right now. Could they be amongst those individuals and families that we have been praying for? Those individuals that we see every day, that we just pass by without saying a hello to them? Could it be that man that is um, you jog by every day and he's sweeping the floor? You don't know. It could be him. Right? Could it be that a uh, relative that you have with his very loud mouth and you hate this, talking to him or her? We don't know. Who knows? It may be, they may be reserved by the Lord like Cornelius and his household and that God may yet answer our prayers for them. Therefore, do not give up praying. Do not give up witnessing. So that's the first thing we may learn. But let us now turn our attention to the house of Simon the Tanner in Joppa, fifty kilometers south of Caesarea along the Mediterranean coast. Peter is residing there at the moment. So, consider. Secondly, the Lord prepares. How the Lord prepares Peter. Yeah, we're not sure whether the men from Cornelius traveled on foot or horses. If they traveled on foot, it would have taken about ten hours. So they would have set off. Uh, immediately last night, uh, after Cornelius instructed them, so immediately they have they have gone off, right? Uh, but if they traveled on horses, which is very possible, they could have set off in the morning. That was still con- considered immediately in the sense because you need to prepare and everything else, right? Uh, in any event, it is already noon. As the three men from Cornelius approach Joppa, the Lord is separately preparing Peter to meet them. By the providence of God and the secret nudging of the Holy Spirit, Peter went up uh, upon the housetop to pray. It is about the sixth hour or twelve noon. It is lunch time. Peter is very hungry. But lunch is still not ready. He continues praying and falls into a trance. Then he sees heaven opens and he sees something like a great sheet with its four corners knotted together, descending unto him. In this sheet are all kinds of mammals, reptiles, and birds that will be regarded as unclean to the Jews according to the Levitical law, Levitica, Leviticus 11, which we read some weeks ago. As Peter wonders at this strange sight, Peter hears a voice Rise, Peter, kill and eat. It is an authoritative voice which Peter immediately recognises as the voice of the Lord. So he replies, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Now this is the third time that Peter disagrees with the Lord's view. The first time pertains to uh, Christ's going to the cross. and Peter said, Be far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. And it's recorded in Matthew 16. The second time was when the Lord wanted to wash his feet, and Peter says, Be far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee, as in John 13. Each time, Peter seems to have a sincere but mistaken reason. The same is true now, for having been brought up with a, with a strictly Jewish diet, <coughs> his conscience does not allow him to eat anything common or unclean anything that's forbidden uh, uh, leviticus 11 but conscience we must remember is not the final arbiter of right and wrong <coughs> excuse me yes we should never do anything that our conscience forbids Whatever is not of faith is sin. So if your conscience forbids you to do anything, you should not do it. But God alone is the Lord of our conscience. If our conscience forbids us to do anything that God has commanded, then our conscience must be shut up. What God hath cleansed, that call not thou common, replies the Lord. Peter again refuses. And the voice gives the same answer. And this happens thrice before the vessel is received back to heaven. Peter is being stubbornly scrupulous beyond God's word. The Old Testament dietary boundaries have been removed by the Lord Jesus Christ who said, There is nothing from without a man that entering into him can defile him, but the things which come out of him, those are they that defile the men, in Matthew seven, and then the Lord Jesus, of course, laid his life down for the cross, and, and in, in that ratified the, the breaking down of the, the partition between the Jews and Gentiles. Thus, the Apostle Paul later would say, "Every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving." First Timothy four four. But Peter course, ought to know better, and yet he finds himself unable to do what the Lord is instructing him to do. But why is it so important for the Lord to break and remove Peter's conscience on this point? After all, uh, does not the scripture also say, for the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost? Right? Why, why must the Lord insist that he, he, he as he were, remold his conscience and be able to eat those uh, crocodile meats that he, may be on, uh, that he may be required to eat in a vision, of course. Well, Peter might not understand it at that point. But what happens next will make it very clear to him. In a nutshell, it was essential to break and remold Peter's conscience in regard to his dietary choices because it is God's plan that the Church of Christ will no longer be restricted to the land of Israel, nor to the Jews. It will now be international and multi-racial. In order for it to be international and multi-racial, God's people must no longer be distinguished by a special diet. Under the Old Covenant, a special diet was necessary for the people, because God would preserve his people as a distinct race until the coming of Messiah. But now that Messiah has come and the Spirit has been poured out, the dietary restriction is not only unnecessarily, but a hindrance to Christian fellowship and unity. Today, this is a matter of great importance, right? The Apostle Paul deals with this issue not in Romans. He deals with the issue in Galatians. He deals with it in Colossians. That there must not be any more the dietary restriction. Of course, some people maybe they are reaching out to the Jews. They may want to have uh, uh, to, to to cook kosher food in order that their Jewish neighbor may not worry whether their pots has been used to cook milk and the meat at the same time and so on. But um, um, but if they do it as a matter of principle. It, then, then you'll be wrong. You'll be going against the doctrine of justification, doctrine that the, the, the Apostle Peter is here being taught. But they do it for various reasons. That's okay. But not as a matter of principle with theological reasons behind. It. Okay. But now consider how the, the principle that the Lord is teaching uh, Peter becomes very clear as uh, Peter meets with the servants of Cornelius. So our third point, Peter meets Cornelius' servants. We read in verse 17, Now, while Peter doubted in himself what this vision which he had seen should mean, behold, the men which were sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. In a remarkable coordination of providence, even as the sheet with the the animals is lifted up for the final time, the men from Cornelius, arrive at the door downstairs. They are calling out and asking whether Simon Peter is lodging there, verse 18. Now Peter is still in a daze and thinking about the vision, but the Spirit says to him, Behold, three men seek thee. Arise therefore and get thee down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Now it's clear that the Lord wants Peter to understand that the vision he has just seen is connected to the visit of the three men, and that it is God's will for him to follow them back. Peter obeys the Spirit and goes down to meet the men. He tells them, Behold, I am he whom ye seek. What is the cause? Wherefore ye are come. Come. I wonder if the men were surprised at all after receiving specific instructions from Cornelius I, I think they are probably more elated than surprised uh, they, they've, they've traveled 50 kilometers 50 kilometers to a specific house to look for a very specific person whom they've never met and here he is standing before them right and telling them that uh, essentially indicating that the the, the lord has uh, indicated to him that he is to uh, Go with them. So they explain excitedly the purpose of their visit. They recount how Cornelius was instructed by the angel of God to send for Peter and to hear words from him. It is unmistakable and how remarkable how they uh, talk about Cornelius, isn't it? How did they describe Cornelius? Verse 22. He is a just man and one that feareth God, and of good report among all the nation of the Jews. That's a tremendous testimony. When I read that, it just struck me. What if I was the one who sent them, and they are describing me to somebody else? What would they say? Would they use the same words? What about you, If, if... If you were the one, imagine you were the one who sent them and they have gone gone to somewhere else and they are going to describe you, right? How would they describe it? Would they say, he's a God-fearing man. He does alms, right? He leads his family in a godly way. Or would they say, well, he's the architect, uh, he's the engineer, he's a CEO of that company and and, and so on. Is that all they will describe you as? Right? Or will they say he is a God-fearing man? Will you be described as a just and righteous man, a man who fears God, loves God, walks according to his word? Would they say that you have a good reputation among your neighbours, amongst your colleagues? If you are young, would they say you are obedient and God-fearing? Right? Or would they just describe you in terms of your occupation? If if they describe you according to merely your occupation, then you have allowed your occupation to determine who you are, rather than your relationship with the Lord, you see. Anyway, as soon as uh, Peter hears the explanation and commendation uh, of the three men, he invites them in and lodges them for the night. Uh, It's too late for them to travel back. They need to rest. If they came by horses... The horses need to rest. Uh, they need to give food to the horses, water them, and so on. Uh, they will return by uh, return to Caesarea early tomorrow. Now, it's clear, isn't it, that Peter understood the message of the Lord through the vision he saw. Peter will later explain to Cornelius personally, you know how that <coughs> it is an unlawful thing for a man that is a Jew to keep company Or come unto one of another nation, but God hath showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Verse twenty-eight. You see, the vision that Peter saw has not only to do with dietary restrictions. That must have been Peter's first impression, but as soon as the Spirit informed him of the visit by the servants of Cornelius and how he is to go to Cornelius. He would have connected the dots by necessary consequences and concluded that the Lord is not merely seeking to recalibrate his dietary habits, but to have him see Gentiles in a different light and to be willing to associate with them. God has showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean, he says. In a sense, we are what we eat. If what we eat is unclean, then we are an unclean people. Since God has erased the distinction between clean and unclean meat, God has also erased the distinction between clean and unclean people, and between holy and common people. Now make no mistake, this is not to say that God does not see a distinction between believers and unbelievers. Peter will later refer uh, to the Church as a holy nation. And Paul will later warn the Corinthian Christians against being unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what fellowship have righteousness with unrighteousness and what communion have light with darkness, he asks, 2 Corinthians 6. No, no. What the Lord is teaching Peter through the vision instead concerns the natural man. Peter is no longer to see the Jews as clean, whereas the Gentiles are unclean. What better way to bring that across than to abrogate the dietary laws? For all men eat. If there is no clean or unclean food, there is no clean or unclean people. That's the lesson that Peter must learn. Well, the Church marches on. Our text this evening paints a significant milestone in the march of the Church. It is the prelude to the Gentile explosion recorded in the same chapter. But it carries a number of lessons for us today. Let's, in conclusion, just look at these three immediate lessons. First, let us thank God for the conversion account of Cornelius. In a way, his situation was atypical because he lived in a period of transition when the Gospel was just switching gears. So his conversion story is quite unusual. We are not even sure if he was already a regenerate believer before Peter came into his life. But from another perspective, his story is actually quite typical. It is a story that exemplifies the, the charge that David gave to Solomon, his son. If thou seek him, he will be found of thee. 1 Chronicles 28.9 Or as John Newton reminds us, he will be found of thee because he will find thee. The story of Cornelius ought to encourage us not to give up seeking the Lord. Some of you may know the story of Colonel Sanders. Colonel Sanders, sounds familiar? KFC, right? Do you know that he was a God-fearing man? He attended church regularly, gave his tithes faithfully. He was probably even a superintendent of the Sunday school. Uh, But he feared that he was not truly converted because he had a habit of swearing which he could not break. He even travelled to Australia to attend a special church convention to see if he could find peace that he craved. But that did not help. One day when he was 79 years old, a pastor in Kentucky invited him to hear the gospel preach, and he heard the gospel, it seemed, for the first time, and he was soundly converted. Sometime later, he published, uh, or his testimony was published. He says this, You can join the church. You can serve on committees. You can be baptised and receive communion. You can become the superintendent of the Sunday school and not be saved. I know it happened in my life. There I was. I didn't have enough spiritual power in my life to keep me from swearing. I know there is an experience of salvation. It is my personal experience today. I know I am right with God. I know my sins are pardoned. Like Cornelius, Colonel Sanders found the Lord because he was not complacent about his own spiritual state, but sought the Lord earnestly. What about you? Secondly, let us thank God for the godly example of Cornelius. As we study the rest of this chapter, We shall see how Cornelius was instrumental together with Peter for the conversion of many kinsmen and friends. But even in our text, we see, don't we, how Cornelius, even while his faith is still partial and patchy, bore forth such a good testimony that his servants and soldiers could testify that he is a just man who feared God. Cornelius was no mere professor of faith. He was a man of prayer and a man who lived by godly principles, despite having a job that no doubt required him at times to appear demanding and uncompromising. You can't be a commander if you are perceived as soft and accommodating. How did Cornelius do it? No doubt because he was neither a violent man, nor a man given to lording over his subordinate or family. Those who knew him saw a man who is just or fair, a man given to prayer, and most of all, a man who seeks to please God. Oh, may the Lord grant that we may imitate him as he imitated Christ. Oh, may it be that your children, your domestic servant, your employees, your subordinate at work, your colleagues, or if you're a student, your your classmates, or maybe that they see in you a Christian man, Christian woman, or Christian child who fears God. Oh, may the Lord grant us the grace to repent of our failures and strength to testify for Christ by our lives. But thirdly, let us thank God for the erasure of the distinction between Jews and Gentiles. It is for that reason that today we can be part of God's covenant people. But as we contemplate on the great privilege we enjoy, shall we not reflect on the sad reality that what the Jews saw in the Gentiles is what many of us may see in the people who are different from us? There are people from poor countries. These are those who cannot there are those who cannot speak English. There are those who are ex prisoners. Those who have tattoos and you see them and they are like invisible to you, you walk by. And there are those with the, the LBGTQ community. Right? And then there are those who are superstitious, idolaters. and you don't see them. They're invisible to you. Yes, we are not to be unequally yoked with all who remain in sin, but no, we are not to despise them or refuse to eat with them or to have anything to do with them if we have the opportunity. If they are stridently or militantly against Christ and, uh, and, and Christianity and Christians, then we should have nothing to do with them. But otherwise, we should make a difference. We should pity them, seek their good through the gospel. When you meet someone that is like um, doing service, you're in the office. They come to clean your office. Are they invisible, or someone you can talk to? Are the security guards? Most of them are unbelievers. Do you know their names? We should know their name. They serve us. We are safe here because there are security guards around there. Right? Get to know them. Right? We just had a change in the guard, you, you realise? when was one, The old one is gone, a new one has come. We need to get to know them. Then we can bring the gospel to them. Right? The workers in your, your flat, have the opportunity to talk to them. So they're, they're, they're out in your, in your corridor changing the light bulbs. What do you do? Are they somebody paid to do that work for you? You don't need to do anything to them? You know, show compassion. If not, then you are like, uh, exactly like the Jews. These are Gentiles doing the work for us. It's all right. No, they're souls. Well, we must never think of ourselves as clean while others are unclean. We must not think that we are superior and others are inferior. We must remind ourselves that we are all sinners in need of salvation. And therefore, let us learn, humble ourselves, and reach out. May the Lord grant us the opportunity to reach out to the Gospel. But before you reach out to the Gospel, reach out with kindness. right? May the name of the Lord, whose blood washed us and made us acceptable to God, despite our unworthiness, be greatly lifted up through our lives, through our testimony. Amen.